Cryptosophy Great Works, number 10, Orwell's Animal Farm. In this episode, Max and I restart the Great Works series of the Cryptosophy podcast, three years after our inaugural Great Works discussion on Homer's Iliad. We kick off the episode with a brief segue, touching on the importance of continuing education, the relationship between the big ideas and the day-to-day realities of this life, and the importance of embodying the spirit of the Great Works. Transitioning then, the conversation about George Orwell's Animal Farm begins in earnest. We start with a summary of the Animal Farm's plot arc, a discussion of major themes, and initial high-level reactions to the work. From there, we dive deeply into a selection of quotations from the work itself and pull them apart to tease out as much hidden wisdom as possible from Orwell's classic. Thanks for listening to Cryptosophy. Welcome to the Great Works. Max, good evening, my friend. Good evening, Doyle. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. I'm, uh, I'm jonesed for the 10th episode of the Great Work series, um, which is the, gosh, it was the first series that we started recording here on the Cryptosophy podcast. And it's the one that we uh, have not revisited um, since 2018. Yeah. And I think we, we got out of college having read so many books that we wanted to keep it going. And it's been very refreshing to try that project again. But um, the continued pro- project of just trying to unpack some of the best books that have ever been written uh, has started again. And I'm, I'm kind of nervous because I'm a bit rusty given how much time has passed. But I think we did a lot of great work there uh, with the books we read then. And I think I'm very excited to continue that. For sure. And, and I think one of the things that's just true, you know, I think it was St. Thomas Aquinas who said something like, you can't study metaphysics until you're 35 because you haven't been enough to study being. Um, I think something like that is also really true of, of the great books. Not that you shouldn't read them until you're 35, but that every year that you're alive, the great works, the great books, art, literature, all this stuff, it opens up more because you have, it it has more experiences to like, for the faces of the works to hit the faces of your life. Um, And I'm, I'm very excited to, to revisit this series with you, Max, because I mean, I know that both of us have gone through pretty substantial um, changes in lifestyle and in just in life, attitude towards life, even in the last two years, um, off uh, outside of the of the podcast world, and and I'm really excited to see what effect that's going to have on on our interpretations and our analyses of of really great literature. Yeah, it really brings a kind of uh, a bitter pill for all the times when we were young, when people were telling us, "You'll understand when you're older," and now we're older, and we're like, "Oh yeah, yeah." yeah, yeah. Uh, we were just talking about this with reading Plato because uh, you have a book club and you guys are reading Plato. But reading Plato at like age 19 when I went into college or 20 um, and reading it now, he's like 10 times as profound as he was uh, as when I was in college. And that's not even having read more philosophy or something like that. It's something about the process of maturing that makes um old things new again and more complex as 
it's very exciting. It's also kind of distressing because you realize there's no end point to this kind of project. Totally, totally. As we said um, on the, the last episode that we recorded, uh, which was part of the Radio Hour series, um, education really is the job of a lifetime. And that's a tough pill to swallow when you're 21, 22 and you know, walking down the aisle for commencement. Um, but just a few years out, you're like, yeah, okay, that's totally true. Um, and I'm excited, you know, I'm excited because I have realized maybe for the first time, and this is part of, you know, getting older, maturing, I'm a dad now, um, but I'm still really young, you know, I'm 26 and I just thought about, you know, well, Prince Philip, of of England died this past week and he was 99 and dude if I live to be 99 that's a whole long time from now you know and there's a just an absolute in almost an infinity to the kinds of things that you can accomplish in that in that amount of time and so there's just no excuse for dwelling or regret or I didn't do this when I was in college or I didn't read that book or I didn't learn those things there's there's just an infinite amount of time and I'm and I'm really pumped to have had that sort of wake up moment as young as I have to recognize that every day literally is the beginning yeah I I couldn't agree more it's kind of unnerving in, in some sense that there's there's kind of no epitome of a life um there's no like plot rising action climax it was all for this in the end uh there's the constant the constant ways of becoming and i think even if it's not in the end doing something fundamentally productive something about these kind of conversations changes us in a way and hopefully changes our audience in a way where you're a slightly different person than you would have been in ways that you could never quite understand from going through uh, continued education that's self-motivated. For sure. For sure. Well, um, I promise we'll eventually get into our discussion of George Orwell's Animal Farm. Um, but before, you know, I thought, Max, that um, before we dive into our conversation of the literature, I'd love to just take a few minutes to um, sort of catch up on uh, where you're at um, and where I'm at and just share the things that we're reading, the podcasts we're listening to, uh, the things we're thinking about. Um, and it's kind of using that as a, as a way to, to set the stage um, for the conversation. So I'd, I'd love to turn it over to you to just kind of know what's up in your life. Sure, sure. Um, a lot of what I've been contemplating recently, I think I spent a lot of time in college thinking about ideas, um, but the ideas hit me probably in the last six months, that there's kind of a, a message to each part of life, um, a kind of necessity, the thing you have to go through when you're that age. Um, and I think, you know, when we were high school and college, uh, a lot of that was about understanding the world. And it was in a very abstract sense. So none of the papers you would ever write would become realities and organizations. Um, none of the ideas that you really encountered were things you encountered in the world. And I think a big part of what I've been thinking about recently is what is being 20 about? And I've realized that a lot of, a lot of my close friends and me have kind of turned back in to look at our lives when we're 20 
It's fascinating how we went from the big ideas in college to who am I and what does any of this mean and what do I want this life to be about? And so a lot of what I've been reflecting on recently is uh, what is being 20 about? Like, what is the call of this age? And it links, it links with a lot of science. It links with being a kind of evolved being, how biological beings have stages in life. Um, but one of, the, one of the answers that I've come to that I've really been contemplating is when you're growing up, even into college, there's an authority and a family and you're a member of a household, which is kind of like a state. So you're kind of defined as part of who your parents are. That's a household. And when you leave college and get your own apartment and have your own job, you now have to define a household for yourself. So it's like my parents gave me a defined place of being and my teachers gave me a defined place of being and maybe my community or my religion did as well. Those were the authorities. But now in some sense, I'm the authority. And so I think a lot of what's been on my mind recently is uh, what do I actually believe in a very practical sense of what kind of household do I want to create? Like, what is the what is the message of this new individual that might one day become two individuals that might one day have children? And I think that's consumed a lot of time lately for me. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I think that sort of that that transition is really tough. Um, for, for a lot of folks. I know it was for me when I first moved out um, of, my, of my parents' house uh, about a year after college. And well, one of the things that's striking is that it's for the first time, like there's a lot of freedom that comes in, in living in college, but it's kind of a wake up call when all of a sudden, you know, you actually have to pay rent. It's not covered either by a scholarship or by a by a, a student loan and you got to pay for your groceries and you actually have to show up at a job and like sleeping in and submitting the quiz after class is no longer an option, so to speak. Um, you, we could, you could, we could, we could have a, maybe a slight conversation about the, the lack of ways in which college actually prepares you for the quote unquote real world. Um, but but I do think that it's, it's a necessary, like there's a series of necessary thresholds of early adulthood that you have to sort of get through and no one can get through them for you. They're, there's, they're kind of moments of self-actualization. And, you know, um, I have been blessed, I think, in my life to have, you know, met my wife young and to have been inspired to begin our family young. And that sort of, I found kind of helped make those thresholds uh, not easier, but more immediate, uh, more actionable. And I think that, um, you know, what you're talking about is perhaps in some sense, the harder battle of taking action through those thresholds. You think that's an accurate description? Oh no, I would definitely say so. I mean, being friends with you definitely gives me that sense that it's like I'm 25 and I'm not married and I have all of these open questions, but since I don't have to actually live any of them or make a decision, uh, since I haven't actually chosen a wife or had a child and taken on those responsibilities, I kind of get to take a, a lazier, often more rationalized approach where 
um, yeah, I, I don't feel like I've been forced into some more difficult questions about like, what is the right way to spend money and what do I want my future to be? And so I, I definitely agree with that. Like there's, there's something about simply making the decision and taking on the responsibility that creates a large void in my life that I recognize. It's not so much that I, I don't know, but that there's nothing forcing a decision in the end. It's like, it's not, it's not that I don't know how to, uh, you know, plan financially or eat healthy, but since I don't really have anyone where that would directly affect the way I behave, I, I don't have to do the existential actual action of defining something. And I feel like, I mean, it's, it's definitely a lot, something that sociologists talk about, but we've pushed adulthood further and further out. And in, in that sense, I think we've kind of pushed satisfaction further and further out. So you don't really get to be someone unless you're defined by what you do for a community or a group of people. I think that's something that I struggle a lot. And I think a lot of people our age struggle a lot who aren't married yet. Yeah, well, and it leads to sort of the contrarian bit of wisdom that would say and this isn't like an accusation at umax at, at all but like the it, it should be it's uh, <laughs> the advice that you could argue then is get married younger start your family younger um precisely because each decision that you make is actually an asset that becomes i mean it's an asset in the sense that it's a foundation upon which yeah you actually build the like sustainability or the satisfaction of life. I think you sit, stated that really correctly where you you don't have to be anything, which is great in some sense, but it also pushes off the sort of deeper, more existential satisfaction perhaps. Um, and yeah. yeah. And you can't, you can't answer those questions without doing either. I don't think, I don't think they're questions you answer in your head. It's like, uh, what kind of parent would I be? It's like, we'll be a parent because what you do is the kind of parent you will be. Right. Uh, it's one thing to have ideals and some vision, some loose vision of your future in your head, but having to live that's an entirely different thing. Uh, and I think that that reduces a lot of the sort of existential anxiety that we get when we're younger. It's like, what is this about? What am I doing? It's like when you're actually there and you've taken on the responsibility, that question starts to answer itself rather quickly the priority shift to become far more practical than we're capable of doing in our heads. Yeah, totally. Do you have, tell us what, uh, what you've been thinking about. Yeah. Um, been doing a lot of reading actually. Um, I decided a couple of years ago now that I really wanted to, I, I felt really bad that I didn't read as much when I had the opportunity to in, in college um, we, we spent so much wonderful time discussing the big ideas, but I felt like I always sold myself short in reading all of the books that we were talking about. And I would just read enough to get by, um, or only the things that are, were really interesting to me. And so I decided about, about two years ago that I was going to just say, okay, it's time to become a serious reader. And so as a result, I basically do nothing but read <laughs> when I'm not playing with my baby son working or recording this podcast. Um, and yeah, so right now I'm reading uh, a couple of things, but I'm, I'm getting to the tail end of the Bible, which I've been reading cover to cover um, for the past 
about year and a half, um, which has been fascinating working through just finished the major profits and I'm working in, uh, in the minor profits right now. Uh, I'm also leading a book club at work through Plato's dialogues. And one of the things that I have totally found to your point earlier um, is that Plato is just more profound. Um, maybe not necessarily only the older you get, but also like the more seriously you read each question that Socrates is ask, asking. And I think that there's a really, it's, it's not superficial, but there's a really easy way out of reading Plato's dialogues, especially the Socratic ones or the quote unquote Socratic ones, the early ones about Socrates before his um, execution. And that is that Socrates is just like a dick or something. And <laughs> that he uses unfair rhetorical tactics to disarm really smart people like Euthyphro and Mino and Credo. And upon rereading, I think that I no longer find that position even tenable because it's clear to me that not that Socrates isn't frustrating if you're not in the, in the manner of thinking that he thinks, but man, he really gets to the heart of, of questions. And like he explains, I think his methodology explains just how, um, just precisely how up on your game you need to be if you want to have conversations like the ones that you and I have, Max, about big ideas, big questions, big thinkers. Um, and so one of the things that I've been thinking about while reading, uh, about, while reading Plato is just, there's a lot of work to do. There's always a lot of work to do. And, and the education uh, is a job of the lifetime to repeat something I said earlier. Um, there's always work to do. And these things are, they're life, they're life transforming. And I, I really hope that um, I can continue to embody these, the values that are, that are contained in these books, because I really do believe that the life that they offer um, is a life that you can't really find anything anywhere else. So um, read a book, I'd say. <laughs> That's beautifully put. I think we'll, we'll get into this in our discussion of Animal Farm, but what's so wonderful about the Socratic method is that it doesn't presume an answer when it begins. And I feel like that's such a rare way of going about a conversation, but it's sort of the ultimate ego depleting and humble way of approaching a dialogue. And it's so genius. Uh, it, it fundamentally like makes the questions more valuable than the answers. And I think the older I've gotten and the more complicated I've realized life is uh the more i've come to appreciate just the questions themselves rather than any one version of how we should answer them so that's awesome yeah i think that's right it's the the socratic dialogue is not afraid to end in a state of confusion and it, it's funny I mean, because we on <laughs> cryptosophy well right well neither is life and you know on cryptosophy number 11 the madman and the death of god I felt like we actually ended in a state of confusion. Um, we had a really oh, yeah. sweeping conversation through all of the big topics related to the death of God, tied it back in an interesting way to modern politics. And then there was this question kind of at the bottom, like, well, but is it really the case that 
things have broken down to the extent that Nietzsche predicted? Um, and is there actually more hope than we thought there was? And we almost couldn't take the conversation any further because we had exhausted the, the tragic oscillation between totalitarianism and nihilism that happens after the death of God. Um, that we almost, we, neither of us as speakers were prepared to then make the leap towards, oh yeah, but values can be grounded in something quote unquote objective like psychology, uh -huh. right? And um, only from the outside am I able to look at that conversation and say, oh yeah, that's what happened. We, had, we, we reached this state of confusion and now it's the confusion has led way to insight. Um, and I can see that from the outside, but when you're in the thick of it, it's like, you're just confused. And I think that the, the platonic dialogues are really, they're written to, to embody that. I totally agree. Yeah, and I think just speaking from personal experience, I think the best conversations I've had occur over decades. Like I, have a, I have a certain group of friends from high school and we've been kind of having the same conversation for 10 years. Um, that's not something that you would think of an intellectual process, you know, of being. You're supposed to figure out the facts, figure out your aims, and we should be able to get after this soon. But there really is, uh, there's just quite a process to uncovering parts of the world and perhaps the, the wisdom and complexity within them. Um, but yeah, without going too exhaustive, should we do George Orwell? I think we should. Uh, before we jump right into uh, George Orwell's Animal Farm, uh, do you just want to make a quick note? Um, roughly 80% uh, of our listeners are on uh, Apple Podcasts or Overcast or um, basically on a platform that's not Spotify. Um, and we will continue, Max and I, to um, publish this series, the Great Work series, the Cryptosophy series proper, the Specialist series. Um, all of those will always be available on um, all podcast platforms, but did want to let you know specifically about a um, series that's only available on Spotify. Uh, Max and I just started this. There are two episodes out now uh, called the Radio Hour, uh, the Cryptosophy Radio Hour. And it's a very different format from these sort of long form big ideas and great books discussions that, that, that Max and I typically have. Um, the radio hour is really just a, an opportunity for us to take an hour to listen to some good music um, and to talk about some of the deep themes that um, even really popular music um, can touch upon. So in our first episode, um, we listened to, um, gosh, we listened to three songs. The first um, that we listened to what was the first one, Max? I'm trying to remember. I know there was a 21 Pilot song. Oh, Sick Boy. Yeah, by Sick Boy by the Chainsmokers. Uh, Holding on to you by 21 Pilots. Um, and then lastly was Achilles Come Down by Gang of Youths. So that was a super fun conversation. Um, we try to keep the radio hour down to just one hour. So it's a little shorter form, uh, more bite-sized. And then on radio hour number two, uh, which we just put up... Um, this past weekend it's april 13th right now so it just came out a couple of days ago um we started with swedish house mafia save the world uh my chemical romance teenagers um and finished off with a song by a lesser known lo-fi artist called akira the dawn and an adaption that he did of a, of a lecture by jordan peterson called happiness is fleeting 
Um, so anyway, that's a super long advertisement, but, um, if you're not on Spotify premium, um, uh, listening to this right now, I'd highly encourage you to, to at least at some point, uh, listen to the cryptosophy radio hour over on Spotify. And other than that, um, cryptosophy.fm is our website and you can sign up for our email list there. Uh, you can find us on discord but all of this is found in our link tree, which you can find in the description. So any way you might want to connect with us will be uh, in the link tree and that links you every which way. But Perfect. let's do some George Orwell. Let's do some George Orwell. So just a quick um, table of contents for the proposed discussion for everyone that's listening. We're going to start by trying, um, well, I'll back up. What we're really hoping to make these conversations is particularly useful to you if you're studying this book, either as a self-study um, or through school. Um, we want to really help, um, you know, just using the educational and interpretive tools that Max and I have to, to open up these books. You know, there's, there's a great notion in the Christian world um, about, it's called, you know, opening the scriptures um, Christ opened the scriptures for the two disciples as they were walking on the road to Emmaus. And I love that image of opening a book for someone and hopefully illuminating not only what it is and what's in it, but why you should read it and why it will have an impact on your life. And so trying to, trying to connect the imminently ethical bit of all great works with um, sort of like an uh, intellectual or maybe ap academic um, appreciation for them. So that's the goal of the Great Works series in general. Whether or not we achieve that in all cases um, is perhaps up for debate. Um, so as a result, the table of contents, we're going to hit just a, a quick summary of Animal Farm um, at the high level. We're then going to take a few minutes for both Max and I to react uh, just at a high level to the themes that stood out for us. Uh, Max then has selected um, roughly nine quotations um, that he'll read out and then we'll discuss them. Um, and then from there, we'll just see where the conversation takes us. And, uh, and like Max said, um, you know, we're available on Discord, on Telegram, uh, via email. We'd love to continue this conversation on Animal Farm uh, with you uh, when we're not recording. So please do uh, reach out. Uh, on that. So perfect. Max, I'll start us off with uh, the briefest of brief summaries. Um, you know, I don't want to cover the kind of biographical stuff on George Orwell in too much detail, but I think it's worth noting just at the start that George Orwell um, is a pen name. So Eric Blair, um, who is the kind of the person behind George Orwell, the pen name, is a really uh, fascinating character you can uh, you know study on your own. Uh, definitely a socialist, but very cr uh, critical of imperialist and communist tendencies. Um, was a soldier for the British in India, where he acquired his very anti-imperialist bent. Um, he ended up in Spain fighting uh, for the communist revolutionaries against the the fascist uh, central government, where he was wounded there. Um, so by no means a simple like reactionary thinker that's reactionary is a word that uh, communist intellectuals like to throw around as basically um, a catch-all for any thinker that's not 
communist and George Orwell just certainly does not fall into that category of reactionary. And so just wanted to make that point up front that while the animal farm is highly critical of communism, um, it's not like he's got capitalism hiding underneath it. No, definitely. And also he, I think he was raised in, um, I think his family was involved in the opium trade into China originally but he was a, a British soldier in India and he turned in that life for poverty, political activism, and eventually to become a writer. So he was born somewhat in the upper middle class of England and he rejected that for um, a very impoverished and I guess still a soldier, but someone who was willing to write. And I think he died relatively poor and relatively young as well. Perfect. So oh, yeah. the, the animal farm picks up um, on a farm run by a fellow named Mr. Jones called the Manor Farm. And um, in early in the manor, uh, early in the animal farm, the one of the old pigs of the farm has um, kind of knows that his death is imminently coming. And uh, this old pig uh, assembles all of the animals together late one night after Mr. Jones has gone to sleep drunk and basically tells of them something of a, of a political myth, right? And he has a song uh, called The Beasts of England that he remembers from when he was just a young uh, suckling. And it's a song about the beasts of England and Ireland coming together um, to basically, it's an ideal, it's a, it's, it's an ideal that stands behind like an ideology, for example. Um, it casts a vision for what animal life could be like in the absence of human overlords. And basically this song becomes the rallying cry um, for a revolution that happens on the manor farm. Now it's, it's not um, the old major, that pig who actually um, orchestrates the revolution, but rather it falls to um, to some of the younger. But that first kind of uh, moment in the revolution is this this wisdom that's being handed on, you know, from the ancients almost as a as a myth that then gets passed. Um, once there's a lot of complexity that happens once um, the revolution has taken place and the and the manor farm has been renamed the animal farm. And so I'm not going to touch on all of the different subtleties that happen. Um, but to put it shortly, one of the first things that the animals have to do is they have to come up with some sort of philosophical structure for the way in which they're going to govern. There's almost like this post hoc need to define what animalism is um, in kind of in with respect to the revolution. Now there's some deeply, um, there's some deeply interesting communist ideas about the revolution and about like an abstraction from the revolution that's called event um, that gets popularized by folks like Slavov Zizek and Elaine Badiou, Quentin Mayasu and some others. Um, and so we could maybe talk about that, but there's this attempt to really define what the revolution meant. And they, they come up with a series of commandments um, that the animals are never to, to break. Um, there's a list of seven of them. And um, from there, the animals essentially start to 
Um, they're relying on the pigs, just like old major was a pig. The pigs are the ones that really write down what um, the tenet, the seven commandments of animalism are. Um, and then um, it's the pigs that ultimately start taking up the brain trust of the farm and really taking responsibility for the harvests and the plans and the silos that we're going to build um, and so on and so forth. And what's interesting is that the pigs, there are two of them at the beginning, Napoleon and Snowball, that are something of the leaders. And these leaders have various cronies among the animals that sort of serve um, serve them. And some of them are blatantly cronies, um, like the one, I think it's a, is it a pigeon or maybe it's a songbird of some kind? And then another one that's a little less uh, on its face cronyism um, is a horse called Boxer. And Boxer sort of idealizes the, the spirit of the communist worker. And his mantra is, I'll work harder um, towards the um, towards the goals and the ideals of the farm. I mean, obviously what they find as soon as they, they have the revolution is that they're able to um, host their, or, or, or bring in their harvests at a much higher um, percentage yield, so to speak, because now that the animals get to keep all of the proceeds and they don't have to send any of it to Mr. Jones, who's going to sell it to make money, the animals actually seem to live in this very lush, um, opportunity. But what they find is that over time, um, because the pigs are siphoning off um, those resources for various projects, um, that they find themselves with less and less over time. And as they go from less and less over time, that spirit that Boxer embodies of the I'll work harder becomes ever more present. Um, at a certain point, the animals decide that they're going to build a silo and um, it's mostly um, a Snowball who has the um, genius insights about what they're going to do with the silo. And there's this whole talk of, oh, we're going to use the silo to um, collect electrical energy to basically outsource all of the tasks that the animals are doing around the farm to, um, to machines. And like, that's the original vision of it. And uh, from, the, from then, it seems like um, Napoleon, the other pig, is just very much against any of the ideas that um, Snowball has. And it's at this point that the humans actually make a counterattack on the animal farm and attempt to regain control of it. Um, and in the battle, um, they award various military honors to several of the pigs, um, Napoleon and Snowball both, as well as Boxer and, and I think some others. Um, but a little bit later on, like some of this starts to degenerate and uh, specifically a rift between Snowball and Napoleon, the pigs that are the brains of the operation uh, come to blows um, to the point that Snowball actually has to flee uh, the farm. And it's only at this point that Napoleon is like, oh yeah, 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 we're gonna take all of those great ideas that Snowball had um, about the, the silo and now I'm going to bring them to fruition. And it's here that we start to see like a disinformation campaign really begin because the animals are suddenly confused that Napoleon has switched his tune from the silo um, is good. Uh, and silo is not the right word for this. It's a windmill. It's, it's, windmill, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of both. It's a tower that they're building. And, um, and 
it's at this point that the disinformation starts to come about where it starts coming out that, oh, no, no, Napoleon has always been in favor of the windmill. Um, it's just that maybe something was wrong with the implementation. So anyway, they start building it. Um, and turns out they weren't building it well enough. A winter storm comes and blows it over. And here the disinformation campaign starts to get worse. And it's, it's asserted that uh, Snowball is the one that's behind the reason for the, the collapse of this thing, despite the fact that they've been working so hard on building this windmill. Um, and, um, and to which the, the boxer, the horse, the old horse who represents kind of that ideal communist worker, he says, you know what, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to get up earlier. I'm going to take longer shifts. We're going to rebuild what's, um, what's been collapsed more. Um, and we're going to move on from there. And um, this sort of thing kind of continues. There are dissenters that leave, but then something very strange starts to happen where Napoleon, who now that Snowball has left, is sort of starting to take dictatorial steps. And because he's the only one that can read and write, the other animals are sort of fine with it. Like they're outsourcing the difficult intellectual work to the pigs because they, their minds are more suited to it. And as a result, the pigs start taking, well, we need more food because we do harder, more intellectual work that is actually harder than labor. Um, and this sort of thing continues. And then all of a sudden, the animals start to notice that the pigs are doing things that they remember sort of contradict those seven command commandments of, um, of animalism that they had so gloriously painted on the wall of the barn after the revolution. And, you know, as the human reading, there's a bunch of beautiful irony because each time they miss, they, each time they remember a commandment, they go back and they find someone to read it out to them. And it's irony because we, as the reader, know that, oh, a phrase has been added. Like, it was, thou shalt not kill any animal. But now it reads, thou shalt not kill any animal without just cause, um, for example. And this thing happens time and time again as the pigs basically transition the farm from the ideal communist utopia into a representation of the manor farm as it was under Mr. Jones. And that's precisely how the book ends with the pigs entering into capitalistic negotiations with humans and Napoleon declaring that as it was of old, we're going to rechristen the name of this farm, the manor farm. And it's in that moment that the pigs um, are no longer visible as pigs, but they walk upright um, and they um, are, um, they are only seen, they, they have the same appearance of the humans. Um, and maybe the, the one thing that I missed in there is that the chorus of the sheep who sort of act as like the, kind of like the mantra of, of Boxer, the sheep are the ones that um, sort of can just re, um, repeat, repeat, repeat the, the principles of the ideology. And while the first thing that they would say always was, um, you know, four legs good, two legs bad, um, representing that the animals are better than the humans, eventually the pigs train them to speak four legs good, two legs better. And the pigs uh, thus start walking around on the two feet. And what we see is that just this twisted and maniacal, um, you know, 
plot essentially by those in power to keep themselves in power. And I, and I think that, you know, maybe this is where my summary ends and a little bit of my, my thematic um, starts coming out. But one of the things that's interesting about this view is that power and power games, at least in the animal form, they look the same. It's un, you're not able to tell the difference between Mr. Jones's tyranny over the animals and Napoleon's tyranny over the animals. They actually look the same. And I think that there's a deep point uh, in there that in some sense, the political ideology doesn't matter insofar as power gets oriented or organized towards an oligarch or a tyrant, all of the governments look the same. So yeah, that was beautifully summarized. Yeah. So uh, from, from there, Max, I'd love to, you know, get sort of, I, I kind of already started my little high level on what the book is about or what the themes are and what they've meant to me, but I'm, I'm curious to, to get your um, high level reactions. Yeah, well, the first thing I want to say is uh, this book is it, it slowly chips away at your sense of humanity and it, it, they do that through the pigs. So, you know, when the animals jump on board with the revolution, there is this you know fundamental notion that there's a utopia on the other side. So as animals will no longer be uh, merely beasts of burden manipulated by Mr. Jones, but we can have electricity and more food than we can imagine. And you see throughout the story, Orwell slowly chips away at their hopes and dreams up into the point where he, he makes the animals uh, agree to things that they had previously staked their lives on. Um, and that itself is like a very emotional part of the story that you can't really cover in a summary. There's just a sense of uh, the utopian dream that is in the beasts of England and old major's version of what the farm could become if only there weren't humans. And you slowly see that become chipped more and more away. Uh, I, it took me a long time to actually start to digest this book and I'll try to be summary in my first reaction to it. Um, but it really does, what, what Orwell does so brilliantly is he kind of creates the form as a political organization or a society where the workers are the underclass or the animals and the humans are leading and the revolutionary vision is against humans. Um, I think, I think he, he really illustrates uh, a politically realist view of what politics is and that he, he sees the world where there are no utopian visions but uh, a utopian vision or something that inspires a revolution is actually merely the trading for one form of manipulation for another as one form of power being wielded uh, to another form of power being wielded. And taking the form as a, a kind of metaphor for a political society, um, the, the book explores uh, economics, class distinctions, educational distinctions, where there's an elite class and an uneducated class. There's technological development, and then there's uh, also trading with things outside the farm. Um, but I think Orwell's, Orwell's very tacit in his ability to make us see sort of the personality of tyranny and its ability to use a utopian vision to manipulate people to believe in a message where that message actually creates the same subjugation they already live under, um, but they rationalize their oppression 
even when that oppression contradicts the vision of the revolution. And there's a lot more that we can jump into here, but I think the one thing I wanted to note on, on the high level is the question that bothered me the whole time I was reading this is why is he using animals? Like animals seem to be people, people seem to be animals. And I think sort of the, the crucial like power of this book where it really gains its name is that uh, the, the reason he uses animals is because that's how oppressive governments view their people. Animals are merely beasts of burden. And that's why he's using animals as characters with different attributes, like people have different attributes and different functions, like people can have different functions. And so he's, he's revealing the way in which political power can be wielded in such a way where you realize that the elitist class views the lower classes as mere animals. And in the end of the book, he equalizes that where you cannot distinguish between animals and people. And so I think in a fundamental sense, um, the book uses the farm as a metaphor to show how people become manipulated to be mere means or mere tools for the powerful. And I think that's sort of my high level impression of the book. One of the themes that, that I'd like to really drill into in, in my high level um, reaction to Animal Farm is the role that the intelligentsia sort of play with regard to the manipulation of what once was perhaps the communist utopia into the tyranny that it becomes. And, you know, it's almost a truism that um, in the West, at least in the last couple of hundred years, that there has been a sort of alliance between socialist ideas and um, sorry, I don't want to say socialist specifically, revolutionary ideas and, um, and the intelligentsia. It's not necessarily restricted to communism and socialism. Um, we get this, you know, going back to the Enlightenment, really being the catalyst for the American and French revolutions in a way that is perhaps underappreciated in the mind of just normal people thinking about those events. And the claim here is that the, what the intelligentsia do is that they rely on their jargon and their ability to play these language games that most people don't have the patience or the, or the frankly, just the aptitude for. They use that as their means of power grab. And, you know, Nietzsche calls this phenomenon a couple of different things, but will to truth is one of the things he calls it. But the other thing that I think is, is more poignant is sort of like the slave morality. Um, it, this, this sort of action falls in that category where the intelligentsia have the tools to say that that which was noble, right? The ruling classes is evil insofar as they oppress those who are lower than them. And like that invention of evil as a concept only comes about through something of an intellectual activity. So getting back to the point that Orwell is making is that the, the complicity that the, the intellectuals play in the arrival of tyranny is one of the major themes of the animal farm. And one of the things that I, from, from like a moral or an ethical perspective, um, I think you just need to call out because most people 
are like the animals and it's, you know, in, in the, in, in the animal farm, it's difficult. It's, it's the analogies are like, it's difficult for the animals to learn how to read well. And like, we live in a society that's incredibly literate. However, most people still can't really read, right? Like they won't sit down and read a 50 page terms and conditions of use contract that they're going to, to sign to use a service, for example, or even like an apartment lease or whatever. And so uh, in the same way that the animals have difficulty reading, like we humans have difficulty reading as well, because it's a challenging task to like work through legalese and technical jargon, whether it's a legal agreement or, um, or even, you know, frankly, like um, op-eds that are being, um, you know, written by intelligentsia type folks in the modern day. And the thing that I want to, you know, to posit that Orwell wants us to glean from this is not that intellectual study academia is bad, but rather um, it's really important that we get education and literacy and like, I mean, competent literacy down and really fixed in our societies to prevent this sort of thing from happening. Because part of what happens is that the the pigs are almost, they're complicit in the lack of, ed, of you know, literacy among the animals, um, which allows them to stay in power. And I think that intellectuals who are supposed to be our teachers, right? I mean, doctor, which is a doctorate is the Latin word that means teacher. And I think the highest level theme that I have is that we have to demand more from, from our intellectual classes and precisely not outsource the brain trust of the human race to the intellectuals because that will result in in the tyranny that's sort of described here yeah i think that's that's very powerful uh, in in your high level theme you said the separation from the i mean i guess the animals and the intellectuals which is the animals and the pigs who are animals do you do you do you agree with me if i said that the animals are people in the book that's how they're meant to be taken as yeah absolutely. Actually, absolutely okay yeah that's as a very difficult thing to accept when you're reading it as he uses animals to bring out that part of our brain that thinks of animals as like you know the thing we kill for food or the thing we use to plow fields but he's using animals to show how power thinks of people and so at the end you realize the animals just are people but they're the way that the elites create people to be mere uh, functions for their benefit rather than individuals with their own dignity. The best example of this, Max, is what happens to Boxer, the horse, yeah. you know, and he is um, without Boxer, the farm does not sustain itself for a season, let alone the, I don't know, maybe 10 seasons that seem to take place in the book. And he's the, always the one that's, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do more. I can sacrifice more to the cause because it's good. And, you know, he's working towards this goal of retirement that all of the animals very early on had determined, like every animal had a retirement age after which they basically would get to just live their life without labor. And they would get to be fed off of the proceeds of the farm itself. And Boxer, I think was maybe just a few months away from his, was it 12 or 13 year retirement when he's working hard trying to rebuild the silo and he falls 
and he falls maybe a couple of times and he can't work anymore. And under the guise of sending him to a hospital, the pigs send him to a glue maker to execute him and turn him into glue and horse mane. And it's just, it's a disgusting um, episode because you, if you have any sort of sympathy for, for Boxer, you see that his life is very much, um, you could see how it could be very much like almost anybody in the modern day, right? Like we still dangle this promise of retirement um, out in front of people to get them to work just a little bit harder um, every day. And that there's this magical utopia land where you don't have to do anything afterwards. And we bribe you with the promise of social security checks, checks and so forth. And, um, and in the case of animal farm, you know, they, they kill him, they kill him. And um, there's this moment in the book that is just so jarring where one of the animals notices that it's the, the glue maker's truck that's taking Boxer away. And Boxer tries to kick his way out of, of, the, of the car and he can't. Mm-hmm. And then he's gone. And yeah, it was, that was a particularly emotional moment for me. And I think that that is the way that whenever you hear the, hear someone use the word human capital, you should absolutely, first of all, if there's someone that you love and care about, you should encourage them to never use that word again. Um, Precisely because it's, it's, uh, it's that it's that notion that leads to something like the boxer situation being possible. He's just human capital. He's dispensable. He's capital. Um, So what you're saying is he's resource, right? Um, I have, I have qualms with the, the term human resources for the same reason, um, <laughs> which I can't necessarily encourage people that I love to never say again, because it's, you know, entered the language of the workforce, but there's labor and labor theory does very dark things to our, our notions of human dignity. And I think that that is another one of those deeper themes of the animal farm that we're meant to, to, to question. Cause that applies by the way, both to the capitalism slash imperialism that Orwell was railing against and the communism, right? They're both wrong about the dignity of the human person and his relationship to labor, because in both cases um, we live to work and the precisely the reverse is true. We work so that we can live. And um, no, certainly. Yeah, no, I do want to say real quick that the the vision of Mr. Jones's manor farm before the animals do the revolution is equally, maybe slightly less because it doesn't play on their belief in a system, but it's equally exploitative of the animals. So you kind of have like a a Mr. Jones is kind of like a fully capitalist maybe like ayn randian version of uh power where there it could even be like a, a prince or a fiefdom mr jones owns and he just he lives off the labor of the animals but the revolution becomes maybe even like a more twisted version of that but orwell doesn't trade like the farm was good and then there was revolution and then the the farm became better it's the farm was bad 
And then the people who promised a dream of hope made it equally bad, you know, and there's very much the realist message of there is no happy system in which people aren't treated this way. But the thing I mean, is, is that he that? does toy with this notion that the utopia is in some sense achieved in those first few seasons after the, the revolution, things are very good in, on the farm for the animals. Now there are some sketchy things that happen. Um, namely there's a litter of puppies that uh, Napoleon, it turns out Napoleon had taken and raised those dogs to be his, who, who they become his, his sort of like, um, his SS, um, towards the end of the book. And that happens very early on. And he is thus is taking additional food to like feed himself and these dogs. Um, but it actually seems that the, the revolution is successful and the utopia is in some sense achieved. And I think that this is very intentional on Orwell's part. Like the reason he plays with this is because it's actually true that the revolution for at least a little bit of time is going to yield those great social goods that it is oriented towards. But what he argues is that it is not sustainable over time. And thus- But but they're never given what they're promised. True. Uh, They're never given what they're promised insofar as they don't like, even though their retirement ages are set and, you know, like whatever, I I, I agree. But I do think that he's playing with this notion that it actually, there is a, there is a light that happens and like the, there's a happy moment after, I think it's probably after the battle of, I forget what the battle is called and where they award the military honors, but there's a moment where um, you know, the animal farm, the revolution was successful. They were able to fend off the human counterattack, and things are pretty darn good before they start going on their ambitions to build the silo. And you just, what you would want to wonder is could that, that setup actually work across time? And Orwell's point is that no, 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 it can't because precisely as, as soon as you allow power structure back into the society it necessarily ends in the tyranny that we have at the end of the book um but i think the fact that a worse tyranny too a worse tyranny it's a worse tyranny because it's so deceptive you know there's i i covid has been an interesting case study in this sort of thing and i'm about to connect covid to something that's totally radically different so uh brace yourselves i think it's in like Venezuela, that the way that they solved childhood starvation in their country, which is a rampant problem, is that they made it illegal to write starvation on the death certificate of a child. And um, that should strike you on its face as really disturbing, you know, to use light language. And what's interesting is in the in the world of COVID, we've created incentives that sort of, they don't do anything near that, but it's sort of this idea, like there's this um, kind of been underground notion that the number of COVID deaths are perhaps over accounting for people who die of other things and happen to have COVID when they do so, because there's so much uh, financial incentives for the hospitals to record those as COVID deaths. And they have sufficient evidence to actually claim the, the financial rewards from those things. And so there's this notion already that, oh, well, we can solve problems by like 
almost like subtle accounting games of the kinds of deaths that play out, right? And the reason why that's connected back to the, the Venezuela argument that I made is that when you are solving problems by lying about them, you absolutely have worse problems than the problems themselves. It's like, in some sense, more, you could, it's more dealable. You can, it's, you can, it's more deal withable if, um, if children are starving at, at exceptional rates, but man, is it really bad when children are starving at exceptional rates and you're not allowed to, to report that they're starving on a death certificate. And that's precisely what happens in the animal farm. Like they go from explicit, um, you know, it kind of enslavement to Mr. Jones, Jones and his system to a system where supposedly they're free. Yo, this is the people's Republic. It's the people's, it's the animal farm, right? Uh, what are you talking about? Things are way better than they've ever been. Even though we've cut your rations six times in six seasons. Yeah, it's the lying. And well, the... I think it's it's a bit darker than that, too. And the way Orwell paints it where he makes the lying necessarily betray what the animals themselves see with their own eyes, their own experience. So it's like, what is uh, a being that has dignity? It's just one that can reason from their experience. One that one that can use what they see to create a better world or and so like this version of totalitarianism isn't just a collection of lies that the animals believe, but it's that they actually betray who, who they are in the most fundamental sense, which is what they know to be true through their eyes. There's even another, it's, it's the starving children, but it's the starving children when you see the bodies of the children on the street and still are forced to capitulate to the system. That's something slightly more evil than mere propaganda. I think Orwell paints that, that in a very colorful and dramatic way. Yeah, totally. So I think from here, a good, uh, this might be a good transition, Max, um, to those nine quotes that you pulled out and we can banter around and then just kind of let the, let the conversation flow from there. Of course, yeah. Um, the first one, and this was, I had a, I had a friend who she painted on her wall, the Socrates quote, he who is wisest knows he knows nothing. And on page eight, very early on, old major, when he's giving his revolutionary speech, um, is trying to justify his dream that he's giving to the animals. So he basically says, I had a dream last night. And in order to justify his explanation of the dream, uh, the quote starts, I've had a long life. I have had much time for thought as I lay alone in my stall. And I think that I may say that I understand the nature of life on this earth as well as any animal now living. It is about this, which, this that I speak to you. And uh, I thought that was, there was such a powerful distinction um, between that version of you know, true wisdom is found in understanding of your ignorance and the person who inspires the tyranny or the revolution saying that they understand the nature of life. That's why that quote st stood out to me. The revolution is certain of its position 
that it understands the whole of life and it has an answer to it. And I want to see how that strikes you. I, I think that we can abstract a little bit to say that this is the distinction between ideology and I would say genuine intellectual inquiry. You know, there's a, I, I spent a long time thinking about the word ideology on its Greek roots because it's, it's idios and logos. And so like one way of thinking about ideology is that it's words about ideas, but logos can also be more of like a reason or system kind of word and not just necessarily like words literally. And you could also maybe equally translate the words, well, ideologies are systems about systems. And so what you actually happen, what actually happens in an ideology is that if you attack the idios, the logos will come after you with its, with its rhetorical strategies uh, to get you to, to back off on your attack. And then when you turn around to attack the, the rhetorical strategies of the logos, the idios will attack you with its high, highfalutin ideals. And so it ends up being this hydra that you're not actually ever able to, um, to make progress with precisely because the, the ideos is given rather than something that's arrived at. And I think that your illusion and comparison of this uh, certainty that old major has back, back to Socrates is, um, is totally relevant. And, and, fr and frankly, I think this sets up quite nicely for what we plan to be our next cryptosophy episode on uh, the, the Heraclitus uh, fragment uh, being, or the Parmenides fragment being loves to hide uh, is precisely this point is that the truth with a capital T is not apprehended by humans or pigs or whatever. I don't care if they have a PhD. I don't care if they're sitting in the Oval Office. Um, I don't care if they have a podcast that 30 people listen to, you know? Um, it's truth with a capital T is only approached by working definitions of truths with a lowercase t. And the whole hope is that we get closer and closer and closer. But as soon as we pretend to apprehend the whole truth, it's immediately there that ideology breaks in and you can do depraved things to defend your quote unquote truth. Yeah, we definitely agree. I think Christopher Hitchens, who wrote a book on Orwell, and I really hope we do get to cover him on our Great Works podcast. Uh, he talks a lot about the totalitarian personality. And it's a very interesting concept because it's almost as if the, the totalitarian government, you can scale from understanding a way of thinking. But definitely what separates that quote specifically, and then the next quote, which kind of summarizes it as well, is the claim to prior knowledge before experience and so the process of reasoning is from evidence derived from experience but the totalitarian personality comes out of someone claiming to know the nature of everything prior to anything else and so assent to the person who says that is by definition uh, the elimination of any kind of criticism if your leader says he knows the nature of life itself, there's no process in which you can critique that. And I think the totalitarian person, whether we see it like in a community um, or in specific instances, 
derives from any person claiming knowledge prior to anything happening. And you can only kind of get this, I mean, you get this in Marxism very clearly, and I think you get it from fascism as well. It's, uh, we kind of know the whole game before it starts and anything we experience after that, we can kind of rationalize or even completely ignore to justify our claim to prior knowledge. I think that's what's fully part of that quote. I think while we're slinging insults at Marxism and fascism, I think that liberalism also deserves to get some mud slinged on it too, because you know those are really the three dominant ideologies of the 20th century. And there was this now famous paper called The End of History that comes out essentially when fascism and communism are defeated in the 20th century and only liberalism reigns on. And it's in some sense, history is over because history is this oscillation between power games played by uh played by various political ideologies but but i think that the the claim to prior knowledge is just as true in liberalism liberalism which and i mean this not in terms of like american liberalism like where there's you know the progressives or the liberals on the one side and the conservatives or on the other side I mean, liberalism as like the underlying political ideology that undergirds the West today. So it includes things like, you know, relatively free market capitalism, uh, election, direct elections by the people of their governments, governments more or less by the people of the people and for the people, uh, those sorts of things. And the, the claim, the implicit claim that liberalism has as prior knowledge is that Max, you are endowed by your creator with certain unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And while it's so easy for us Americans to look at that statement and kind of like um, have a twinkle in our eye and smile because it's so inspiring, it's actually that's the prior knowledge that you really need to call into question. And when you do, I think you suddenly get a sense for why the evil evils of free market capitalism, why the evils even to, of democracy happen is un, under this idea that you are already free, Max. I'm already free. We have liberty. It was given to us by God. And now we just need a bureaucratic executive state to punish all of the people that try to encroach on our God-given liberty. And that notion from is is one of those things that it's it comes it's a it's an assumption that you have to make in your proof towards uh setting up the government and i would argue that if you assume the opposite you actually get a radically better vision for the human person where no no no, he's not free i mean look at him he spends (laughs) most of his time drinking whiskey and looking at porn or whatever um clearly he's not free um and i I think that it's it's a critique that specifically here is being leveled at at communism and marxism but i hope um you know our listeners can also feel that this criticism needs to be levied at liberalism too no i would agree and i think the we can move on to the next quote but i think the format that this takes is that Um, it's any adherence to an idea that's absolute, but that one themselves does not understand. It doesn't really matter what form that takes. 
and in the book itself, it's that animals are good and humans are bad. Uh, but I mean, we even see this today. Uh, it's that uh, like the the notions of white privilege and white supremacy uh, as like the the metric in which you analyze all of human outcomes is predicated on race and sex and sexuality or race and gender and sexuality as any version, whether it be liberalism um, or in this book that humans are bad, that claims an absolute good and an absolute bad. And I think the the economist Thomas Sowell is incredibly prescient here where he says there is no good um, in decisions. There's just trade-offs between different things. I think Orwell really crucially understands this. You never get to have your cake and eat it too in a political organization. There is always a trade-off. You always sacrifice something for getting something. And in the end, I think like a really massive point to this book is um, there's no ultimate dream or absolute truth or absolute good that we're all oriented to. Like human life will just be the human condition. It just will be suffering. You don't get to escape that. And any attempt to escape that is merely another capitulation to a different form of tyranny. Before we move on to the next quote, what, what you said is so well said there. And it reminds me a lot of St. Augustine's position on on government. Um, I wrote a blog post once upon a time. I don't think that it's up on the internet anymore. I've looked for it. Um, I wrote a blog post um, kind of in response to um, a, it was specifically in the, in Catholic circles uh, in the 2016 election, there was, it was quite popular to abdicate your vote and like not vote for Hillary or Trump because both were uh, unsuitable options. And a lot of this was based on um, earlier work that had been done by um, a really quite famous and quite uh, influential thinker named uh, Alastair McIntyre in, a book, uh, in his, his famous book is called After Virtue. He wrote some, some stuff in the, I think it was the 2004 election of Bush v. Carey, um, where uh, it was another opportunity that, you know, we Catholics should ab abdicate since neither, uh, neither president is um, moral to vote for according to our code. And I, and I wrote a, a blog post that was relying exclusively on St. Augustine's political theory to, to argue that that sort of mindset is, uh, is not possible from like a Catholic understanding of, at least St. Augustine's understanding of the purpose of the state. You know, he argues that political life is one of the just desserts for original sin in the garden by Adam and Eve. And that particularly and on purpose, political life is something that we humans must engage with as this slavery that we have earned because we are sinful. And therefore, political life and engagement with the political life, contrary to like sort of the Greek point of view, where it's like the highest pursuit, it's one of the necessary things that humans have to engage with but not because it's any good, but because engaging with this punishment that was imposed upon us by God and its justice is precisely a tool that we can use to gain redemption. And so I wrote in this blog post that um, abdicating the vote is never appropriate. And the harder the vote is, the more crucial is your need to cast it because that's precisely an opportunity for you get to get to embody the fact that 
the political enterprise is a result of sin. And uh, I think that while that's not here in this book, it, it's, it's that tone or tenor is it, it just, dis, it just dismantles a, any political ideology on its face. And I like that about it. I do as well. Um, I think there's an article by Christopher Hutchins on Orwell. And I think Orwell has a quote about the power of facing unpleasant facts um, as sort of like the duty of a journalist or a writer, but that's, that's exactly it. There's, there's no way out of this situation. There's no dream or, or some ultimate form of something. Uh, just as we suffer as people, we will suffer as a polity or a society. Um, but yeah, to, just to move on to the other quote, uh, the next quote, which we were moving from page eight to page nine. But I think the place where tyranny begins is not only the assertion of an ultimate vision or dream, but the assertion of a total and absolute enemy. And so on page nine, Old Major says, their comrades is the answer to all of our problems. It is summed up in a single word, man. Man is the only real enemy we have. Remove man from the scene and the root cause of hunger and overwork is abolished forever. And uh, just to put a, a quirky end note on that, I would just like to point to uh, how prescient that would be if you just replaced the word man with the word whiteness, <laughs> how easily you would see the same kind of ideology in our current age. Uh, but for Marxism, it would be uh, just remove the capitalists and for fascism it would be uh, just remove the Jews and the gypsies and you you see the same kind of enemy so I want to hear how that quote rings to you well one of the things that I, I'm going to take this in a couple of different directions and hopefully it's going to be coherent but one of the things that the is happening when you just define an enemy like that scapegoat mechanism is actually really fundamental to to the human species uh, Rene Girard argues that the religious uh, sense is fundamentally built on a it's an evolved trait to be able to blame an innocent victim for um, truly not trivial acts of um, of violence and it's you, you can imagine that, you know, perhaps, you know, 50,000 years ago or something, we had uh, certain groups of human beings that could figure out that they could make peace with their neighbors by taking their desire for revenge on, say, like, you, you know, your tribe came over and raided our place and killed my father. And so we raid you and I kill your sister. And then that continues down the generations he argues that essentially at some point there were certain human clans that realized, you know, what, let's make peace and let's blame this virgin over here or this lamb and let's kill it instead of each other. And that that scapegoat mechanism actually is a is a fundamental um, it's a it's not really a selection mechanism but rather it's in some sense, it is a selection mechanism because it allows for like stable, larger societies to actually establish themselves or ground themselves. Okay. So what the hell does this have to do with, with Nazism or communism or what you're talking about? Um, I think that what we witness when political, when political ideologies get a hold of this evolutionary factoid, which is fundamentally religious. And that's, I think a really key point to make. It's why 
um, anti-racism looks so much like fundamentalist Islam, which looks so much like fundamentalist Christianity. You know, it's so strange. Like they're all um, these yeah. weird religions that have these uh, dogmatic statements that undergird them. And that's yeah, precisely think, what like, political. Just... Yeah, go. Oh, no, I just want to say that's, I think, what why I brought up earlier, why Hitchens called it a personality rather than an ideology. It's we're not fighting against a specific ideology. It's a specific way of thinking. Like the fundamentalist versions are all sort of just analogies of each other. They're all the same thing. You could dress it up in Marxist clothes or Islamic clothes, but it's the same way of thinking. Exactly. And and so what is happening is that these political ideologies are hijacking a piece of evolutionary circuitry that's really useful, right? This blaming of an innocent victim so that we can actually build societies um, that are larger than, you know, just a few families um, and radicalizing it. And one of the interesting things that happens in Christianity and perhaps why Christianity, I think, um, has been able to be enlightened in a way that Islam so far has resisted um, is precisely, well, the sacrifice that we used to have to do all of the time to make peace with our neighbors, we can just point to Christ and his sacrifice on the cross and put lay all the blame there. Like that guy is the one who's guilty of all of our sins. And thus we've kind of enabled this the West as a monoculture is incredible. The fact that it's so large and capable of so many things. And I think that's precisely because there's, it's almost like we found the ultimate victim to blame and it's Christ. And that's sort of the evolutionary function that, that sacrifice plays in that. And what we see happening, I think in, in these other political ideologies is that it's really convenient when the guy that we can blame is the perfect human being who died on a cross out of love for all of us. As soon as it starts being a gypsy or a capitalist or, you know, a white guy trying to get into Harvard, that's not good because like that person needs to die on the cross now. And that's not desirable because somebody already died on the cross for us. Yeah. And I think, I mean, just to bring it back to the book, Orwell does do this and it might've been left out of our summary, but there's, uh, there's these trials where animals are brought before the rest of the animals and they admit to have betraying the revolution. And then the dogs rip their throats out. Um, there's a very palpable and potent scene when Saddam Hussein comes to power and he what he does is he names individuals in a crowd of men, the most powerful men in Iraq at that time. He names them as betraying the revolution. And so in the room, half of the men's name are called. And what he has them do is walk outside the, the names who are called. And he has the, the other half shoot them in the head to become complicit in the revolution. Um, but that that is sort of the the ultimate embodiment of what creating a singular enemy is. And I think Orwell gets that very well. Uh, you don't you, you require the need for blood if you have an absolute version of an enemy. And I think that's sort of also within that within that evolutionary program they're playing on, we have the evolutionary capacity for genocide. Uh, the need for violence becomes, total once you have a 
philosophy or an ideology that's total. Getting to the getting to the inherent sinfulness of human nature and like your your point about human genocide being not only a possibility. I mean, I think that the fact that genocide is is in existence is precisely an evolutionary feature that has gotten us to where we are, which is a pretty disgusting way of looking at it. But, um, you know, even the fact that it, it appears that Homo sapiens committed mass genocide over, you know, thousands of years against the Neanderthals, which were not so different from them, um, to the result that the only intelligent uh, ape species on earth now is, is, uh, is, the, is the Homo sapien. It's, it's hardwired there because the resources are worse have been so scarce in the past. Yeah, most certainly. Um, unfortunately, I think this is where kind of Orwell gets his credibility. And I think that's what I'm uncovering through this conversation is this book is actually very dark. It's very, it's like Char Charlotte's web on a bad acid trip. It's a very dark version of what society is. Um, but his fact of making us encounter that helps us understand what human society is on, on some fundamental level. Shall we move on to the next one? Yeah, we can. Um, this is shortly after, and I apologize. There's so there's so much to play on in uh, early major or old major's words. Uh, but this is on page 11. He says, and remember, comrades, your resolution must never falter. No argument must lead you astray. Never listen when they tell you that man and the animals have a common interest, that the prosperity of the one is the prosperity of the others. It is all lies. Man serves the interests of no creature except himself. And among us animals, let there be perfect unity, perfect comradeship in the struggle. All men are enemies. All animals are comrades. And I think we really did play on this earlier uh, in the previous quotation, but I think it sort of ties to the, it ties together the previous two quotations in that um, you need the, the vision of the good, which is I understand the true nature of things and the vision of the bad. And that creates a situation where your belief in the revolution must never be questioned. And so once you get this uptake, just on page 11, it's probably about a 120 page book, uh, everything that follows that is evil and lies and viciousness comes from the inability to question the revolution itself. And I think that quote captures it so perfectly. Uh, you, you may never come to question the revolution and that's what allows the evil to happen throughout the rest of the book. There, there's a communist thinker, specifically a Maoist thinker named Elaine Badiou, whom I just mentioned briefly uh, uh, several minutes ago now, um, who talks about truth in a very interesting way. And he says that truth is the result of four truth procedures, and they are science, art, love, and politics. And one of the things that Badiou does is he takes like this really, I think, very rich and very interesting idea philosophically of the revolution. And he sort of, I don't know if he uses this language. He, he definitely uses this language. He abstracts it into this notion of the event, 
right? So political events are revolutions. Then there would be artistic revolutions that are also events. Um, and even insofar as like the word artistic revolution makes sense as a phrase is evidence that he's kind of right, that there's this notion of a radical separation between what happens prior the, the event and then what happens after. And one of the things that Badiou contends is that truth is actually a militant procedure that comes about through fidelity to the event after the fact. And once the event takes place, the revolution takes place, what you need is a group of people that are willing to um, embrace the event, give it a name, and then live fidelity to that event, come hell or high water, such that truth in Bedu's system is like actually generated from that fidelity to the event, rather than truth being something that's exterior to a political revolution, um, is, is rather interior to this, um, to this notion. And I think that, man, like when you go there, some really twisted things um, start to take place. And, and Badiou even mentions this, so I don't want to necessarily throw him entirely under the bus um, on this, but like one of the examples that he brings up is the fact that Antoine Lavoisier was murdered by the terror in the French Revolution. And the revolutionary leader at the time said something so dark. He said, the Republic has no need of chemists just before they executed him. And um, in some sense, like that's precisely true. And like the France that was being birthed through that militant uh, um, fidelity to the, to the French revolution as perpetuated through the terror was willing to sacrifice equally, perhaps equally or even more revolutionary ideas in the realm of science. And that's one of those things that has to be very carefully monitored. And, and Badiou, in like to his credit, says that one of the jobs of philosophy is to mediate between the truth procedures so that the politics doesn't go too crazy and we don't execute the, the scientific revolutionaries. Yeah, so you think from this point, Orwell sketched a version of the formation of totalitarian governments that's very prescient to its psychology across all of history. Is that the way you read it? Because I know you, you've definitely studied a lot more history than I have, but given the previous quotations we've discussed, do you feel like it's almost as if the metaphor he generates in this book is palpable in a way that sort of applies to all of history? I'm, I'm hesitating to like want to answer just because I've got so much modern totalitarianism on my brain. And I think that there's certainly a common characteristic about all of those. Um, so I might abdicate a little bit on answering this question, but I, but I do, but I definitely do think that what he's trying to get at is that there is a darkness in tyranny that um, you just don't get around. And um, there are, even in the darkness, there are darker than, than others. Like we see in, in the book where Mr. Jones's tyranny was actually probably better than Napoleon's tyranny. Yeah. And then the trading of one tyranny for another. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's probably too much in this book to talk about, honestly. 
What's uh, the next quotation you have? I think it's Clover, and I'm trying to figure out um, if that's a, a horse. It's on page 76. But we get to this point in the revolution where she she's kind of she's thinking about what had happened, but without actually betraying the revolution. Uh, and she says, or the, the book says, instead, she did not know why. They had come to a time when no one dared to speak his mind, when fierce growling dogs roamed everywhere, when you had to watch your comrades torn to pieces after, con- after confessing to shocking crimes. And I thought this was a very potent, very potent quote. It was, it's, it's a somewhat uh, irrelevant character just thinking about what the revolution had been and the dreams once they started singing the the beasts of England from old nature's dream and they'd come this far and she realizes she's living in a kind of hell uh, where there was no there was no autonomy or individuality and that stuck out to me particularly because she realizes that their inability to be free as thinkers of the revolution was sort of identical to the uh, tyranny that Mr. Jones had had in the beginning. And so I think I think it's page 75, 76. She has this lament of realizing the violence that had once been their dream. Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't know that I have anything more profound to add to that one. Okay. Uh, we can go on. This is much closer to the end of the book. Um, and I forget who's talking here, but this is on page 109. It says, but the luxuries of which Snowball had once taught the animals to dream, the stalls with electric light and hot and cold water, the three-day work week, were no longer talked about. Napoleon had denounced such ideas as contrary to the spirit of anim- animalism. The truest happiness, he said, lay in working hard and living frugally. I think that oh, that's, think that... sounds a lot to me also like um, to, that we were mentioning earlier, sort of the lies of capitalism sound a lot like that too. And, and I think that that's, there's, I think that this critique is actually secretly embedded there in Orwell, like insofar as the pigs actually start to become capitalists and engage in trade and they have an agent um, who like a lawyer who like is their representative to the outside world. And then they're making, trade deals with the various farms that are adjacent to um, adjacent to the, um, the, the animal farm itself, the, the kind of neighboring farms. This gets back to what we talked about earlier with the, the, the fundamental misunderstanding of human dignity, both by communism and, and capitalism, both, right? Because frankly, from my sort of, um, post-liberal sort of mindset like I actually kind of deeply agree with the snowball vision for life where we have electricity and and robots and AI and you know all of these wonderful comforts and we only have to work three days a week and hey when we're working it's probably stuff that we want to do for fun not even stuff we need to do to live Um, I very much think that that is an ideal to be striven for and yet you can very easily see the capitalist critique and the communist critique because 
Well, at that point, the human is not an animal anymore. He's not human capital. Um, he's a God, so to speak. And neither of those ideologies are willing to bow to the, the, the awesome glory of, of the human person. Yeah, and I think what you touched on there is very important, which is he's still an animal. And like what the book does so well is no matter how, no matter how big their initial vision was in the end, they realize that they're still animals. There's still someone to work the farm. And I I guess this is found in the three ideologies you critiqued earlier, which is Marxism, fascism, and liberalism. Um, I think what Orwell's really saying is the end of that quote, um, which is no matter which system you ascribe to, it will in the end say what Snowball says, which is the truest happiness lie in working hard and living frugally. And there's no system that can't tell you that because of the, the condition of resources that human beings find themselves in. And so there is no dream that you can attain. I'm, I'm kind of gripped at this point in our conversation, Max, by some of the Socratic confusion that we were talking about in the segue earlier in, in the conversation, because at the same time as like being all idealistic about our critique of, of all three of the main, of, of all three of the 20th century's mainstream political, political ideologies, we, we live in liberalism, obviously. It's, it's so clear to me what's so wrong with it. And I'm also like left in a state of utter confusion about what's to be done to overcome its faults, you know? Um, Because it's clear to me that we need to move beyond this vision of the human being as worker, which somehow we didn't move beyond when we left communism in the dustbin of history. Um, And uh, I'm kind of like, I just, and this is, and this is partly maybe we're departing too far from animal farm here by me posing this question, but I'm, I'm really struggling with what do we do in the sort of future of American politics, like the actual ballots that we have to cast in two years in the midterms and in four years, the next general, um, when clearly the whole system is fantastic and beautiful and has produced the you know frankly the greatest country on earth and you know we live at the pinnacle of human civilization in all of our history and yet there's also so much still that's wrong and could be improved upon what do you uh max do you do you have some are you sharing my sense of socratic confusion here no, most definitely. I was reminded by a song uh, by the Avid Brothers, and I, I think maybe we should do this in a radio hour. But one of the lines in that song is, uh, and your life isn't changed by the man who's elected. Uh, and the song's certainly a kind of lament. And I can, I can get a, a, a bigger quote for you, but I think that's what Orwell kind of calls out so deeply. And that is the lack of answer we have to create a political society that provides human beings with what they most want. And I think maybe Hobbes was onto this with nasty, brutish, and short, 
as a description of what man's life is. But um, I think in modern politics, we on either side have this sense that if life were just this way, it would be better. And what Animal Farm really brings out is you're very much still left to toil in the farm, no matter who's the ruler of the farm. And it's the removal of that illusion that might allow you as an individual to transcend that illusion to create a life of meaning. But I don't think there's any life of meaning as the book goes that we can create for everyone. And I think that's kind of the tragedy of politics. I love that image of transcending the illusion. It's almost like the, the maybe a contra the St. Augustine point of view that I was parroting earlier. Maybe the real way to move forward is to, in some sense, to, to use Eric Weinstein's phrase, we need to leave this planet. And I mean that metaphorically, like we need to leave the political system and, you know, do things, build culture, um, have conversations like this, read books, and in some sense, just know that happiness is not found in the political system or, and thus the political ends are perhaps not the ones worth pursuing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Douglas Murray makes this point often. He says that the 21st century has become so politicized that people have started to pretend that uh, self-actualization in the political realm will give their lives meaning but there's all of the other parts of life. There's, there's poetry and relationship and friendship and I don't know, ability to work with machines and fascination with plants and nature and even experience of plants and nature as an individual, whether you're like camping or hiking. And it's sort of like when, I think maybe this is part of what Orwell is saying too, it's when politics becomes the whole of your focus that human life becomes so distorted. Like actually the place in which we find fulfillment is so far away from politics. And there's a weird sense in which we've fallen into politics being absolutely everything at this point in history. And I think that's when you're both in the danger of falling into a tyranny, but also you're at a danger as an individual to falling into meaninglessness. Because if politics becomes your life, given what human beings are, and maybe this is what Orwell is saying in the end, uh, your life becomes meaningless. You're still just a beast of burden, no matter who rules over you. In C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, the older demon writes as an advice to help the younger demon that's trying to, you know, essentially lead to the damnation of, of his assigned guy, is that... Um, keep him preoccupied with politics so that he will have less time to think about things like virtue or, uh, or <laughs> prayer. That's beautiful. That's so beautiful. I, uh, yeah, I did find uh, the other part of that quote as well, which I think parallels Lewis well. Um, but in that song, it's called Head Full of Doubt and Road Full of Promise by the Avid Brothers. Um, but it says, and your life doesn't change by the man that's elected. If you're loved by someone, you're never rejected. Decide what to be and go be it. Uh, and maybe it's the ultimate contempt for politics as the solution for life that Animal Farm really gives us. Like politics will never be the solution to what we need from this life. 
I think that that is absolutely the message that the 21st century needs to learn from, from Orwell. You know, the claim of this great work series is that like, if you actually read these books and internalize them, that you will be better and like perhaps the world can be changed by, by them. And I think precisely this point is, is one that needs to get home. You know, it's really easy for, I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, why is it the case that, you know, intellectuals have a tendency to be so political? And I think about this also in myself. It's like, it's like almost like thinking about philosophical issues or even like other, other fields, not philosophy kind of lends itself. It's sort of a similar activity to speculating about policy uh, positions. And we definitely see this like politics is one of the original sciences sort of to splinter off from philosophy, maybe even as far back as the ancient Greeks, because there's this weird alignment between intellectuality and, and political rulership. And I think that the one of, uh, one of those morals that you could embody in your life is precisely this one that we're talking about that the depoliticization of everything is precisely what prevents us from falling for the sorts of games like Major is playing and Napoleon is playing. We're less susceptible to tyranny if we have something else, not the state or a leader as the object of our hope. Certainly, yeah. And it's funny how the political always presents itself as your hope. Like the 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 politicians always speak as if politics is all that matters. And I definitely think that's not true. I mean, a, a very, very crass version of this is like, imagine how many family dinners have been ruined by disagreeing positions on current political narratives. It's like, that's disgusting given how beautiful a family can be or how rewarding it can be or friendships that have been divided by politics. And so maybe the illusion is sort of the narratives given by, I guess in our system, the two versions of the pigs, uh, the pigs as Republicans or the pigs as Democrats and identifying with a grand vision of society is kind of what makes animals out of all of us. Whereas we're individuals with dignity when we are actually ourselves as separate from politics, as a person in real relationships, where the narratives we see on the news are not who we feel we are as individuals. And we don't define ourselves by what position we take on economics, taxation, policing, or abortion, but as friends to one another. Well said, Uh, well said. What's our next quote? Oh, the last quote (laughs) is the last quote in the book. And I mean, hopefully this helps us bring it all together. Um, But there's the image of the pig standing on two legs with the humans and the animals looking through the window. And the book ends with no questions. Now, what had happened to the faces of the pigs? The creatures outside looked from pig to man and from man to pig and from pig to man again, but already it was impossible to say which was which. And I guess in this quote, Orwell collapses his metaphor between the human being and the farm animal. 
it's a very dramatic conclusion to the book where you realize that there's really no difference between the farm farm animal and the human in uh, Orwell's design. Specifically the, the tyranny that the humans represent, right? Because that rallying cry for so long in the book was four legs, good, two legs, bad. And then it switches towards the end to be four legs, good, two legs, better. And then you see here where it's not just that the pigs look like the human beings, like they are the human beings. And, you know, I think that, you know, you asked earlier about, well, the humans or the, the animals represent humans, right? And like, because that's the way that power thinks about humans, like human capital, human resource. Um, and I think, uh, I think that that's true to a certain extent, but what is unclear and one of the things that, I mean, and we've kind of hit this point home. And so I'm not trying to politic here by like revisiting the same like fundamental theme on what Orwell was trying to get at. But it just seems to me that despite all of his errors, you know, Mr. Jones was an alcoholic and was cruel at times and arbitrary and um, took advantage of the animals and didn't feed them well. It was never clear that well, we never got to hear his side of the story, but it was never clear that it was really malice that was driving the treatment of the animals, you know, or an attempt, a blatant attempt to just uh, to be better than them, for example. Like it's more likely the case that, and we can all relate to this, it's he's probably a guy that's doing his job and triaging the day-to-day deals with the devil that anybody has to do in the world because like the world is not perfect and full of all of these, you know, messy things. Whereas the pigs on the other hand, they're the ones that actually betrayed the ideals of animalism and the seven commandments and the utopia vision and everything. They did that on purpose for the sake of reestablishing and enslaving the animals as a power play. And so I think that is precisely what makes this ending scene so revealing and disgusting is the, the willful nature of those pigs in what they've done. And in no world can you imagine, you know, like there's, there's just this tendency to, you know, rewrite the way we think about books. Um, and we see this a lot um, on the left. And it's, it's one of the reasons why, you know, books and reading books are is so important so that you don't let people tell you what the books say. Um, and I do think in this case that it's really, it's really dangerous to, to just presume that the, 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 and the humans at the end are, um, are as good or equal evils to the human being at the beginning, right? Mr. Jones, which is, by the way, the first word, I believe, of, uh, of the animal farm, and the last, the last sentence being the one that you just read, um, I think that, those, that, that that symmetry is there on purpose, and um, we are meant to see them as a stark contrast. And we just, we just can't forget that that these, these evils that we build for ourselves are all that they're going to be 
more evil than the evils we find ourselves currently in. And so this is very much to the Jordan Peterson point about like, don't try and go fix a military helicopter. If you have no competence filling military helicopters, fixing military helicopters, rather fix the only the things that you can fix and be humble about your ability to fix things. Because otherwise you're going to be in a situation where you find yourself waking up one day and you're the pig that's now a human. Definitely, yeah. I think I think what Orwell is very good at showing in this book and why it's stuck around for so long is it, the, the book admits that the natural state of things is injustice. And if you somehow imagine yourself to be holier than the natural state of things, you will just become the enemy that you originally set out to destroy. I'm, I'm very much reminded of Batman, which is you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the vision or become the villain. Um, but exactly. And they set out to destroy the humans in the beginning and they just became drinking partners with them in that last scene. Um, so their ultimate evil is what they became. And so I think the whole the whole creation of totalitarian or utopian visions is predicated on the notion that we can escape our condition. I think what Orwell is saying very loudly is there is no escaping the injustice of our condition. There is no dream that you get to build here. Human life can be made better, but in the end, there's no absolute thing that can save you from the injustice, which is a fact of life insofar as you've produced a, a society that would be incremental and individual uh, and any version of that that was absolute and total would be the same version that you sought out in the beginning to destroy it's, it's sort of like tyranny is turtles all the way down <laughs> there's no good version of it right right I'm, I'm tempted at this point to, um, to maybe tie a bow in it, Max. I'm I, may, maybe to, to tease where we, we plan to go with the great work series from here. I think that Orwell has, this is, this was my first experience reading Orwell. Most of the books we've read on the great, great works podcast. I've had the, you know, the great blessing to have studied in some depth before. Uh, this was, this was a first time approach for me. My, in my high school, we read, um, Aldous Huxley instead of George Orwell, kind of when we got to the dystopian novel genre. Um, and um, so it was, a, it was a real treat to, to read this. I also just appreciated how, um, just again, that there's something about literature that speaks so much more poignantly sometimes than treatise does. Um, yeah. Like you could read a political tract um, you know, a science, a political science tract on similar themes. And it just wouldn't have the life that it would like, kind of like that, that scene I was mentioning where boxers trying to kick himself out of the car that's taking him to his death. It's like, you just don't get that sort of emotional attachment um, to, to characters or, or positions when you, when you read a treatise. And so, um, yeah, it was just delightful to, to read these political contexts in a fictional um, fictional sort of sort of context. And I think really that this is an art that we have lost. And it used to be sort of the modus operandi of great works in the West. You know, I think about Lucretius and his On the Nature of Everything, De Rerum Natura, 
um, on the nature of things. And that is essentially a science textbook that is written in a poetic epic meter and is, you know, beautiful literature and it's philosophy and engagement with the biggest questions all at the same time. And it's such an effective tool of proclaiming the ideas that Lucretius is trying to get us, um, get us on board with. And I think that reading Animal Farm kind of awakens in me that, man, it would be really awesome to, to start to see more, um, to see the, the, the literary people taking more, more responsibility uh, for passing on the philosophy of our times. Most definitely. And I actually think we see at this current moment a betrayal of that as well, um, because we've started to tell ourselves very repetitive and I guess stories that no longer confront us. If you think about what Disney's done with, uh, with its stories, that the repetition of a, a superhero story is what's coming out every year. Uh, we, no, we no longer tell stories that confront us in some sense. I think they still do exist, but there is something more true in literature than is true in the actual real world, even if we're trying to discuss it scientifically and precisely. And this has been a brilliant example of getting to see the real world through a story. Uh, and there's a way in which it exposes more of what's true about the world than our actual discussion of facts ever could. Certainly. Well, Max, if, if you have no, no other final thoughts, I think we should stick the pin in it right there. Let's, let's do it. Thanks everyone for coming along with us. Yeah. Thank, thanks everyone so much for making, for making it through uh, to the end here. Um, gosh, this was a really good conversation, Max, and I'm, I'm excited to, to bring the great works series um, back alive here with installment number 10. And uh, yeah, just for, for everyone here that's made it to the end, um, please do like help us continue the conversation, enter the dialogue with us uh, after, after you're done listening here. Uh, Cryptosophy.fm is uh, kind of our, our hub for everything on the internet. You'll find our email list, links to um, our Discord server, Telegram, um, all there. And we'd, we'd love to really take this to the next level um, and continue to, to discuss and even to debate these ideas with you. It's, you know, Max and I are in some sense, sometimes making uh, wildly uh, ambitious claims in our analyses of some of this literature um, and would love to just have some more voices um, in the dialogue. We, we, we crave those alternative perspectives to help us really more deeply appreciate these books and the ideas that they contain and to just revisit something that Max and I were talking about a little bit before we turned on the recording um, for this podcast and mentioned it a couple of times throughout the conversation, you know, education really is the job of a lifetime and um, you, you should never be done um, because there's just so much moral significance to all of these books and they can open up life in completely new ways. Um, and I, I hope and I pray um, that um, this conversation can inspire you to, to never give up on that, um, on that job of a lifetime and to keep, to keep reading things, to keep learning, um, and to never outsource the claims, um, 
to an intelligentsia of any kind, whether it's Max and I here on the Cryptosophy podcast or, um, or public intellectuals or whomever, like there's, there's always um, a need for you to, to really engage with these ideas uh, yourself without uh, a, a second party filter um, like this podcast. So go read a book. Don't take our word for it. Awesome. Thank you, Doyle. Good night, everyone. Good night.